The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Lainey Reiner knows pollinator gardens and why they are so important to our lives. In this episode, Lainey explains how to be pollinator successful. She teams with her husband, Gray, to grow hundreds of thousands of pollinator plants every year at their nursery, Thunderwood Farms. Thunderwood Farms specializes in producing custom-grown perennial plants, growing using clean methods that support plant health for an outstanding garden near you. Laney's moving story about how friends and neighbors saved the day right before an approaching hard freeze brought me to tears. Always an advocate for the horticultural green industry, Laney has taken the next step by becoming the executive director for the Georgia Green Industry Association, GGIA. Laney was recognized as the GGIA Young Professional of the Year in 2013 and the GGIA Communicator of the Year in January 2020. She is a 2005 graduate of the University of Georgia with a Bachelor of Science degree in horticulture. She has served in leadership roles with the Georgia Farm Bureau, Center for Applied Nursery Research, Advancing Georgia's Leaders in Agriculture and Forestry, and the Georgia Green Industry Association. If the legislature is in session, Laney is at the state capitol watching legislation and gathering an audience advocating Georgia's horticulture story. Our interview with Laney Reiner, episode 12 of the Garden Question podcast, right after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Laney, what is a pollinator garden? The garden that attracts pollinators. Pollinators could be bees, butterflies, but they could also be bats and birds and beetles and a number of things. Why are pollinators so important to us? We need pollinators so that we can produce the next generation of seed. Many people have heard that statistic about we would all starve to death if we didn't have honeybees. It's not just honeybees, it's all the other pollinators as well. They're very important to our ecosystem and keeping our environment in the right balance. What are your strategies for starting a pollinator garden? The first thing I usually do when I look at an area is site evaluation. Is it a sunny area? Is it a shady area? Is the soil dry? Is it wet? Is it clay? Is it sand? I just kind of look at those basic environmental factors of what we're working with, plan out the area, how it will be used. If you're planting a pollinator garden that attracts bees and you know your dog is going to chase every bee and get stung, you know, you might want to move it away from the area that they were. So those are the type of things like 
how is your area used? And then those just basic site evaluations before you put the shovel in the dirt. Pollinator garden really doesn't have to be big either. It can be a lantana in a container on your back porch. It can be as big or as small. It doesn't have to be a huge undertaking to start a pollinator garden. Is heating humidity really a big factor in choosing the plants? Take, for instance, let's say the area that you want to put the pollinator garden is in a shaded area. You wouldn't want to plant a lot of the plants that you'll find on pollinator lists like coneflower or coreopsis because they won't really bloom. Without those flowers, for those plants in particular, it will not attract pollinators. You've got that shady area, plants like pasta or coral bells, different types of shrubs like azaleas or camellias, those type of things. Those grow very well and they bloom in the shade and those would all be excellent additions to a pollinator garden. Heat and humidity are also a big factor. Some plants just don't grow in Georgia. You should plant plants that will grow and do well so that it's not a frustration. How about drought resistant and drought tolerance? I'm actually really glad you asked about that. That is something. I talk about all the time to folks here in Georgia, we have really often very wet winters and then midsummer it gets to be kind of hot and dry. I always look at it. It was a definition I learned way back in school and it's always stuck with me. Drought resistance is a plant that can tolerate 10 days without water and sustain its aesthetic qualities. Tolerance increases to 14 days. In Georgia, to go 10 days without rain, even when it's hot and dry, is a really long time. Many of the plants that grow here, they can be native plants or native cultivars. Sometimes they're a little more garden friendly. They grow here. They are accustomed to our weather and those type of things. Those are things to think about. If you've got a wet, soggy area, you don't want to put in a succulent. If you've got a hot, dry location, you don't want to put in a coleus that's going to need water every day. So it's definitely something to consider just from the maintenance side of things and conservation aspect. Many of our plants, particularly pollinator plants, they're quite drought resistant. It's not a huge, huge concern, but it is something to consider. Yeah, once you get it established, then they pretty much can handle what nature throws at it. Exactly. Well, what about type of flower or the nectar? It depends on the pollinators. I often think about like a hummingbird. They tend to be attracted to a very tubular flower. And they are also attracted to the color red, which is why you'll often see those bird feeders that people put in their yard. They're painted red. Plants like salvias or agastache. I say it that way. Some people say agastache, but I say agastache. Those type of plants, they'll attract hummingbirds. If you've got a real thin tubular flower, a bee may not be able to get down in there. One of our native little bees might, but you know, like a honeybee would not. If you're attracting those, you might want a more open-faced flower like coneflower, which would be an echinacea or rudbeckia. There's so many different types of plants that attract pollinators. I'm very sure there's probably one for everyone out there. Another big thing about planting a pollinator garden, it could start, like I said earlier, it could be just as simple as a container. But if you're really wanting to do a full scope, you're going to want to plant a garden that would have blooms throughout nine months of the year, basically through spring, summer, and late into the fall. Our native bees and stuff, 
when it starts to get warm, they're going to come out and be looking for something to eat. That's when it's so important to have that. How important is the food for the pollinator larvae or caterpillars? If we don't feed the larvae, they don't grow into butterflies. Always think back to this one talk I did. I will not tell you who or where because I don't want to embarrass anyone. I was giving a presentation on pollinators. The lady was telling me about her pollinator garden. We were at the question section. And she said, you know, I planted everything that was on this list. And I've planted and I get butterflies. But then there's these dang worms that are just eating up everything. They're pretty worms, but they're just eating everything. And I'm like, (laughs) those might be your caterpillar larva. And I said, what plant is it on? And she said, bronze fennel. And I said, absolutely, they are eating it up. If you're going to plant food for the larva, just realize you are inviting those creatures into your environment. You don't want to spray or or anything like that. If you're inviting them in and creating a habitat for them, you want to cultivate their growth as well. It is important. Different caterpillars, different butterflies. The host plants are different for all the different types. One that a lot of people know about is the monarch and Asclepius is the larval breeding plant. They're very specific and there's different types of Asclepius. Give us the common name too. Milkweed or butterfly weed or swamp milkweed or world milkweed. There's a lot, but Asclepia is the big one for that. I usually tell folks, University of Georgia Botanical Gardens put out a great flyer on which milkweeds we should plant in Georgia. And it really recommends that we stay with our native species or native cultivars because it can be confusing to the monarchs if we're planting the wrong type in the wrong place. Most of our industry is really good. I don't often see the wrong ones for sale in the trade. Most produce native cultivars. So what plants would you recommend in a sunny location for, say, a combination to to get you through the the three seasons? I love asters in the fall. That's my favorite. So Mm -hmm. I always start there. There's a lot of different asters out there. And if you look at the botanical name, they've been relabeled to Symphiotrichum. We know them as asters. I love the purple ones. They tend to do really well here. They're tough. They don't mind if it gets hot and dry, and they don't mind our rainy winters. Those are great. And in the summer, coneflowers are always in bloom. Coreopsis, which is uh, tick seed is the common name. I think that maybe there's another common name as well. Those always do really well. Salvias will bloom throughout a long season. In the spring, yarrows, hostas, coral bells. There's all sorts of stuff. I don't know if you know this, but June is perennial month. So it's the easiest month to get blooms because nearly most of the perennials are blooming at that time. I like those. A lot of times in the very early spring, starting to see pollinators come out. There's a few perennials that are blooming, but this is when you would rely on things like your azaleas or maybe some of the trees or stuff like that. You can usually get dianthus blooming this early and they'll go to it. Some of the early phloxes, like the ground cover phloxes, my grandmother always called it thrift. I think that's a rural Georgia common name for it. <laughs> Normally, you just see it as phlox subulata. Okay. Those are great for that early season bloom. Yeah, I think thrift also transitions over into eastern Alabama, too, because that's what my family called it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad to know we're not the only ones. You mentioned that you could do a pollinator garden in the shade. Tell us what plants would work best there. Any of the perennials that will bloom in the shade that will tr- attract pollinators would work. Pasta. 
You've also got your shrubs and those sorts of things. You've got the open blooms. When they're real closed, it's hard for some of the pollinators to get in there. I don't get, I plant St. John's wort in the shade, but it kind of filtered shade. So we've got that. But I'll tell you the one that always impresses me, and it's not a native plant at all, but we always see so many bees on it at the nursery is helleborus the linton rose it's excellent in the shade especially for the early spring season and even the late winters when you look at helleborus and camellias that like some of them will bloom in october november and then some of them will bloom in february march you can depending on the cultivar that you get you can often really extend that season to the far reaches done a lot of talks on pollinator gardens what are some of the more common questions you get asked there a lot of the questions and and this one sounds crazy to me every time, but I know it's a concern. People will ask me, how much do they need to mend their soil? They'll ask me, how long should they expect the plants to last? Balancing water and those sorts of things. Well, the soil question is, you know, you've got the soil that you've got in your garden and you can amend it to a point, but at some point you're going to have to work with what you've got. So if you're in North Georgia, you probably have clay. If there's a plant that does not grow in clay soils, you'll struggle with it. And at that point, I would tell you to choose choose another plant because there's plenty of plants that do very well in clay soils. Of course, it's always great to amend the soils as well because it just it makes it easier on the plants. Clays can get really hard and hard for root penetration. But the other question about partnering the plants together, once you do your site analysis and you kind of decide, is this an irrigated area that I'm going to water? Is this a non-irrigated area? Is this area of my yard really damp or is it dry? Start reading your plant tags and those tags, and this is always the example for those tags because you'll look and I'll use this hosta as an example because it is just it's the best example. You'll look at this hosta tag. There's a hosta named Sum and Substance, and it says it's going to get to be four foot tall and about four foot around. It does in Kentucky. In Georgia, it's only going to get to be about two foot tall and eventually three to four foot around. But if you look at that, it also will tell you the light requirements and the watering requirements. Those factors, if you'll look for those and kind of match them up, as you're choosing your plants and you're choosing, look at those sizes. You can kind of make sure that the big plants are in the back and the little plants are in the front and that they need the same amount of water. So whatever situation you have, you can make sure that they'll do well together. Those are things you also learn from experience as well, because I go back to that hosta plant tag. It also says that it'll grow all the way from full sun into deep shade. Again, it will grow in full sun in Kentucky. In Georgia, it needs some protection from our summer sunshine. Yeah, burning the leaves up. And people think they've got some kind of caterpillar or bug eating it. That's right. <laughs> Any other common questions? Those are about the most common. People do often ask me about which is Sclepius because there's so much information out there. And I'll just run through our native ones that you can find. Asclepius incarnata is our swamp milkweed. It'll grow just fine in your garden. It's got a nice big, there's a cultivar that's grown a lot that you'll see named Cinderella. It's got a nice big bloom. The plant gets to be about four foot by four foot and we'll start seeing monarchs on it at the farm. Actually, Grace saw the first one about a week ago that was on her way back from Mexico. Her wings were really 
really beat up. The other ones that you'll see that are later in the year, like Asclepias tuberosa, this is almost a roadside weed here. You'll notice it. It's a bright orange flower and it'll bloom in June or July. You notice it at 55 miles an hour. Rest of the year, you don't really notice it but it's also an important one in our ecosystem. Asclepias syrica is the just straight milkweed. It is actually not native here in Georgia. You usually don't find it in the trade for that reason, and it can be very invasive. So we generally do not recommend planting that. And then the tropical milkweed, there's some research that shows that it may actually confuse the butterflies and they don't migrate back to Mexico. So we try to avoid that one as well. If you're planting a pollinator garden to feed the larva, you want to avoid pesticides because you don't want to poison the larva that you're trying to grow in your garden. What is your earliest garden memory? Oh, this is a great question. I am actually third generation on our family farm. It was my grandfather's farm and he called us dirt farmers, which meant we grew vegetables and plants, not animals. I can remember being a very little girl we were out in the big garden. He also sold a lot of what he produced. We had a roadside approved stand through USDA and so this big garden out there. And I can remember going along behind him and dropping corn seeds to cover up and we would plant everything at once. But the other part that I always remember, and I don't know which one came first, we would plant the squash and the cucumbers and heels. And then we poked in marigold seeds around where we poked in the others as a companion plant. I just thought it was the neatest thing that we were planting flowers in the vegetable garden. I didn't understand why until I was much older, but it repels a lot of the squash borers, the smell that the marigold puts off it repels a lot of the squash borers and things that would get into your produce. It's like a natural repellent. <laughs> Anything else? I can tell you this other one. I was a little bit older. Right in front of the house, there was a strawberry patch. There was no, it, at the farm at that house, it's still there. My mom and dad live there now. There was nowhere that was off limits to plant. My grandmother was a florist. She would put stuff everywhere. Granddaddy grew produce and that sort of thing. Right in the middle of the front yard, this circle driveway up at the top was a strawberry patch. And it was a pretty big strawberry patch because it supplemented the fruit stand. Those strawberries had been there several years and they were beginning to decline and they decided to take them up. And granddaddy called me Sport. He's like, okay, Sport, what are we going to plant there now? And I had been inside watching Woody Woodpecker. And if y'all have ever seen that, he would hit his beak into something and it would make that crazy spiral. I told him I wanted to plant beans in a spiral like Woody mm -hmm. Woodpecker. And he said, okay. And we did. <laughs> so <laughs> we, had, we had a difficult time harvesting those beans, but it was a fun experience. And uh, it certainly made an impression on me. Gardening, it doesn't always have to be so serious and, and everything. We planted beans in a spiral like Woody Woodpecker. They ate just as good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. Hmm. I have a lot of plants. Let's see. In my garden, I have rosemary. And I probably won't ever have a garden without it. It's the first thing I always try to find anywhere Gray and I have ever lived. It's where we're going to put the rosemary. And that's because I like to cook with it. What is your secret for success in growing rosemary? Trying to keep it a little bit dry. <laughs> <laughs> so right now I have it in an area that drains really well. If you think about rosemary, and it's a plant that really does not love our clay soils. 
is native to the Mediterranean. The soils tend to be dry and rocky. At our old house, I had the perfect place. They had extended the house and we had a gravel drive and I planted it as a foundation plant of what used to be the driveway. So it did great. Our house here back in 2013, it's much better tended. I've got it on a western facing against the house, on a western facing brick wall with very well-drained soils. I've actually got about a dozen of them there. I removed the shrubs and planted it as the foundation planting on that wall. Well, tell us about your garden. You said you had a lot of plants in it. Tell us about it. So I'm a perennial grower. When there's two or three of a crop left over, they never really go to waste. They usually end up coming home if I admire them. If I don't admire them, I throw them over the hill. But <laughs> so it's there's a lot of different types of plants. Gray has got and, and we've got a big yard here. It's, it's four and a half acres front two and a half are 70 year old planted pines. Whoa. There are pathways all through those pines of plant because they are truly planted. You know, there's golf cart paths and walking paths and little destinations throughout. There's one area right in the center where we've we had lost several over the years, actually, before we moved here. But it gets enough sun to grow a little bit of grass and a lot of weeds. So <laughs> we tried to make the most of those areas and those natural pathways. I have more dogwoods in my yard than anyone in Woodbury. So it's very much a traditional big bang Southern garden. When we moved here, dogwoods, azaleas, just everything explodes all at once, makes a huge first big bust. As Gray and I have added to it, we've tried to plant things that would bloom at other times so that we had more color throughout the year. It is Truly the most beautiful in the spring. The saucer magnolia started, the Edgeworthia has started, and the dogwoods are swelling, and they're going to pop any day now. So let the show begin, huh? That's right. We're ready. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite tree? Well, I live in a pine forest, so it's not that. They drop more pine cones, than, so it makes a mess. But I think my, my very favorite tree... We have this front area in front of our house and it was really open and there's room for one big tree. I planted a ginkgo. It's just a neat plant. And the thing I admire the most about the ginkgo, it is, it's a nice color throughout the year. It's, it's a big, it gets to be a big tree, but it drops its leaves all at once. That's just a really nice thing, I think. You get to enjoy that yellow color. They're holding on and holding on and holding on. And then all at once they've dropped. So I think that's probably my favorite tree since I had to pare it down to only plant one up there. How about a favorite shrub? Oh, now that one's really hard. You know, and I, I will tell you, I, I admire a lot of different shrubs for a lot of reasons. Uh, I tend to lean towards flowering shrubs just so that they can add more color to the garden. I am currently growing myself about 25 Fothergillas, Mount Airy. They bloom in the spring and they've got a white flower. And of course, they go dormant during the winter, which for some people, don't they don't really like that because, you know, it doesn't get that nice evergreen. Having a property as big as ours, we've got a lot of opportunity to add stuff like that. So I think that's probably right up there at the very top of my list. I've always wanted a place where I could plant some, not just one. We'll have some. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sounds like. How about an ornamental grass? Now that one's a little bit easier. And this is a, you're going to say this is a ridiculous okay. one, and it really is, but I do like it. It's the ponytail grass. 
it's just a neat grass. It's green and it's soft. And if it's watered really well, it'll grow really long. And it does look like a ponytail. If you don't water it so frequently, my mother likes to say it gets gray hairs. So <laughs> it's just a really neat grass to look at. It will it will reseed. I don't plant a lot of them in mass because I don't want it wear. And then I'll usually, the ones that we have here in the yard, it's just a few in one little area. And so when I see them start to bloom, I'll pull the grass seeds off so they don't get everywhere. Maybe they could get us a sterile one of those. I would be in heaven. <laughs> now, I don't know if this is going to be hard or easy for you, your favorite perennial. That one's terribly hard. It depends on the day. <laughs> I don't know. I've always, they don't bloom long enough for most people. One of the first perennials that I learned was Stokes Aster, Stokesia. They only bloom for a few weeks. The flowers themselves, they're very unique looking. And there's one in particular called Peachy's Pick. It is peachy as a person, not the color of the plant. It's purple with a white center and it's a, a very pure white. Stokes asters, I admire them because they're incredibly tough. They don't mind our clay soils. You don't have to amend for it to grow here. If you've ever seen the roots on a Stokes aster, you know they're thick and, and robust. It's native to Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina. It's got a very narrow range, but it's one of our plants and I think it's one of the best. What are your plans for your garden? Along that wall, I've got one area that I've really been focused on the last few years and right off of our porch and patio. And I've got that rosemary that I was talking about there. Grace built me a little wall separated out. So it looks like it's kind of an extension of the house. And there's a lawn area in there and I'm building an herb garden. So I've got the rosemary on one side. It's the same thing with many of the herbs that they just particularly don't love our soils here in North Georgia because they are native to the Mediterranean. Or if they do love them, they love them too much, like mint, mm -hmm. and will take over everything. This garden that I'm building is a combination between in-ground and containers. I'm really excited about it. It's coming together really nicely. I've grown a few herbs that just really are not going to grow here, even if I put them in a container and try really hard. We're getting there. In the ground, I have the rosemary. Of course, I've got lavender, which I have to treat very much like the rosemary. And as a ground cover to keep down the weed pressure, I've planted santalina and thyme. I keep the oregano in a pot because it will take over everything. It's coming together nicely, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be a nice area. A lot of those plants will repel mosquitoes and that, si that sort of thing, so it's right off our porch, and I've planted some sage and those type of things, so I can cook a little, and it smells nice. Yeah, yeah. You said you had some ground covers that you planted to hold down the weeds. Explain how that works. Anytime you've got bare soil, you've got the opportunity for weeds to germinate, but if you can suppress the light in an area, often you can help keep the weed pressure down. Ground cover, they're used all the time to help with erosion or for weed suppression, all types of things. And I want to enjoy my garden. I don't want to go out there and weed nonstop. We always use a mulch, obtain moisture, and then I plant a ground cover. Santalina, I don't know that a lot of people really know this plant. You either really love the way it smells or you really hate the way it smells. There's not a lot of middle ground. It is very strong. Mm -hmm. It is excellent, excellent at suppressing weeds. <laughs> so, <laughs> a 
But you can always go with something like thyme or if you're not terribly afraid of the oregano and how aggressive it can be, you could go with that. It'll compete with the lawn if you let it. So mm. it can be very, if it likes where it's growing, it can be very, very yeah. persistent. In your professional career, who has been your biggest influencer? This is a really hard question for me. I, I can think of 10 people. Well, you can give us several. Okay. I think I'll start first with my college advisor, who's Dr. Mark Rieger in, in horticulture at UGA. I don't know how I landed under his program. He was a great fit. He knew that I was not going to be bound down to one particular path, and he just helped me find my way through general horticulture. He knew that I had dreams of one day opening a nursery. I needed some experience in a nursery setting as a grower, but I also needed experience on the business entrepreneurial side. He did a lot to help me work through that, as well as Dr. Paul Thomas. Probably the two that helped me most get on my path. Dr. Thomas helped me get an internship at James Greenhouses, and they weren't even offering an internship. I've <laughs> been forever grateful for that. <laughs> so. So those are those are two of the big ones. But as I've grown in my career, of course, I've had a lot of folks that have helped mentor me along along the way at different times and through different challenges that I face. I think, you know, it's hard to pin it down to one person. There's just a lot of people who have really helped me get to where I am. Much more coming up, including a very moving story right after this. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. What do you think your most valuable garden mistake has been? I do know the answer to this. (laughs) Gray and I used to live at this fantastic house we well we owned it in comer georgia comer was gray's hometown we bought this house on georgia avenue it was the biggest house i never ever ever thought i would live in a house that big and i never ever ever want to live in a house that big again and thank goodness i did not have kids at that time because if you have kids you know they can mess up quicker than anything we were not brand newlyweds but we weren't We hadn't been married too terribly long. We're in this house and it was an interesting property in that there were three houses on this road and the three houses belonged to three sisters and the house in the middle was the house that we bought. So the landscape on these three houses was one continuous landscape from house to house. The shrub lines were the same, the same plant selection was just one long line. We moved into this house and I began to care for this garden that was already there. A lot of these plants are great plants. They perform fantastically. But one year during a drought, we had the biggest outbreak of mealybugs that you have ever seen. And I could not get rid of them. I could not. So I ended up pulling up the shrubs that Mm -hmm. were completely infested. I mean, I had gotten them off of everything else, but they were just, we treated the area. I didn't plant right back, but then I did plant back. I thought this could be a nice area for a ground cover. And I planted vinca. And I don't know why I planted vinca. I think every (laughs) mosquito in Madison County wanted to overwinter in my vinca. It grew fantastically. (laughs) 
we did not get to stay very long. We had so many mosquitoes in our yard after that, and it was because the vinca was so prolific in that area. It was close to the house, and there was runoff from the house there, so it was consistently moist. It was just... So you had a mosquito hatchery there. <laughs> we talk about plant selection, right plant, right place, and it, it was a good plant. It liked growing there, but it was not in the right place. So. You and Gray were able to open your nursery, Thunderwood Farms. Tell us about that. I love this story. It's the heroic comeback story that we didn't even know we needed. When Gray and I first married, he was in real estate. I was going to school and working in the industry after I had graduated. We were rocking along just fine. The real estate market in the Athens area was fantastic. He and his parents originally had opened and, and then owned the assist cell there, family business. Gray and I, we fixed houses and, and we've owned a lot of different houses and lived in them. Now I'm, I'm so glad to be settled. 2008 came. If y'all remember, the market fell out on real estate. There was so much fear and confusion. It was that summer. We were very nervous. We had 18 lake lots, our home, two other homes we were working on. Of course, this is all within a family business, not just not just he and I, within a matter of three weeks, every single property we had sold. The market fell out the following week. And I was still working at James Greenhouses at that time. We could not find a house to buy. Wow. We ended up having to live with my in-laws for a couple of months because we could not find a house to buy. <laughs> we were beginning our family at that time as well. And just with all the uncertainty, I wanted to be back near my family. And that had been in all our long-term plan. It just didn't seem feasible. And then everything got turned on its head so quickly. We went ahead and we moved down here to Meriwether County, where I'm from. We moved into the parsonage at our church because our, our preacher had his own home. We looked for a job. The economy just kept getting worse and worse. If y'all remember, anyone in this industry remembers there was a drought going on. I couldn't get hired because I was eight and three quarter months pregnant. <laughs> Jobs were not, they just weren't there. We worked through the end of that. Our son was born in January. February, we began planning to open the greenhouses. Like I said, everything in real estate had sold. So we, we were okay financially and we were able to make the investments that we needed to get our greenhouse and everything. We went from there. Gray's a very hard worker. I've never been scared of work. I've always been an agricultural based families. It seemed like a good fit. It was really good. I wouldn't go back and change anything, but looking back on it, we were just on the very brink of collapsing at any moment and we didn't even know it. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you found a market for your plants? We did. Actually, we joined GGIA because I learned about them in college and I knew that that's where you went to make friends and sell plants. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is the most unique or weirdest plant that you grow at Thunderwood Farms? Now, I'm just going to have to tell you, that is an impossible question. <laughs> <laughs> I have a new one every year, it seems like. Last year, I grew asparagus, like plain old garden asparagus. Yeah. Or ornamental, which is the strangest thing in the world. I mean, it's not ugly, but I've never considered it an ornamental plant. We've grown some crazy looking dicentras. We've grown just all sorts of di a dicentra is a bleeding heart. We don't often see those this far south because they'll normally go summer dormant on you. And at a nursery, that's just a recipe for disaster. So Tricertus, which is the toad lily. They're not incredibly difficult to grow. They're just odd 
plants that a lot of times people will not know. I think the one that takes the cake, it does not grow here, it'll grow in a container, is Tucrium. It's just a little silver shrub, sort of like lavender. If you go to California, it's a common plant. Easy and drought tolerant, but in Georgia, it does not love our heat and humidity, and it especially does not love our clay. We've grown a lot of different things for folks. Often when we grow things like that, it's for a particular job or for a very specialty type thing that you wouldn't find normally in a garden center. Are you experimenting with plants? You say, hey, I think I'd like to try that and see if there's a market for it. All the time. When you start skimming through availability, if you're a gardener and you're browsing through the seed catalogs, it's the same thing for a nursery person. We're skimming the availabilities and saying, oh, that might be neat. I don't know if that grows here. Why don't we find out? (laughs) the, The coolest thing I grew last year that I never expected to see in production, it's a native plant. But this is a native cultivar. It's a Spigela marylandica. It's one called Little Redhead. Spigela is a native plant here. It's a great pollinator plant. It's it's fantastic. But, you know, you normally see them in mm-hmm. deep kind of wooded, moist shade areas. And you'll see one or two blooms. And this one will grow in full sun and it'll put on a full color show. And it's not four foot tall. It's a respectable 18 to 24 inches. Very garden worthy. I don't know how they turned out. They sold out or I got to keep them too long. You don't get to plant them at your house. They all sell out. That's what happens. So we bought some more. (laughs) I think that worked. Let's try it again. That's right. Actually, the reports on that one were pretty good. And we knew we we didn't think that we would have any trouble with gardeners here being successful with it simply because it is a native plant yeah. in our area. And this is just a native cultivar. So we, we didn't stress too much about that. There was an Aurelia that Terra Nova put out is one called Sun King. I did not think it would survive in our heat and humidity. And sure enough, I managed to kill all 72 of them in a matter of about 10 weeks. Hmm. This is in the greenhouse? In the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. Trying to keep it as cool as I could in July in Georgia. That's a challenge in a greenhouse, too. I would it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think the big event for y'all was on December the 20th, 2017. Probably a historical day in your life, you and Gray's life. Ooh. Walk us through what happened that day. Um. So, it's, well, I just in short, we had a tornado. That doesn't really cover it. I will tell you that day, it did change our life and it changed the trajectory of Thunderwood Farms. It changed very much like the market falling out in the other story. It it changed everything. We've got a really good relationship with garden center owners right up the road from us in Fayetteville. And I'll just go ahead and give them a plug. It's Art of Landscaping. Back in the day, they were Andy's Nursery. We wouldn't have made it through our first year without them. Every Christmas, we generally go hang out with them for a little while. We'll go to lunch and just catch up before the holidays and those sorts of things. And Gray and I were going that day and our workers were at the greenhouse and they were just trying to finish up. We take the week off between Christmas and New Year's at the greenhouse because nobody's calling us that week. It's just for perennial growers. I mean, plants are going to sleep. And so that's that's sort of a vacation week for us. Just trying to get towards that. We slipped away. We knew there was some weather coming in. It was just supposed to be rain. The kids were getting out for Christmas break. My mom had picked them up. We had gotten nine miles up the road to Alverton, Georgia. Don't know what came over me, but I told Gray, I said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And rain, I don't know why. I just, I felt sick. Pulled over to the rain was pouring down so hard 
we could not see pulled over and he's like laney we we can't not go we have to go and i'm like okay you know so pull it together he drives us on up there we get to the restaurant and we had to park around back i took a picture of this i was looking at a door there was a sign on it and it wasn't just like a temporary sign it was a sticker and it said not a door but it was clearly a door so i took a picture of this we go inside we sit down we ordered our appetizers and my mom calls in a complete and total panic there's been a tornado there's been a tornado i think the house is okay the kids are fine we're fine you need to get home the greenhouses are gone and i don't even think it really registered with me what she said i said okay i looked at robbie and shirley and i said y'all i gotta go there's been a tornado and gray like just bless him he he immediately he's calling ray and sarah which are, were two of our key crew folks to make sure they were okay and it just i didn't even really know i was nearly numb we drove back to woodbury got out of the farm and it it really was every everything was gone i mean the plants were there the not a plant was gone but the greenhouses all the structures were completely flattened thank goodness ray and sarah were okay they were in the greenhouses when they came down. And Sarah was about seven and a half months pregnant. I mean, it was the scariest thing. She was okay, nothing hit her. Ray had one of the bars come down across his back. It wasn't the brunt of the weight. He had a red mark, so we sent everybody to the doctor to get checked out. Everyone was okay. Plants were there, but the greenhouses were gone. As you often happens when you have something like that, following those crazy storms, there's often a freeze right behind it. I can tell you the greenhouse was full to the max. We were already busting at the seams, planning for spring. You start shipping in February. I don't know that we had a lot of time to feel that week. I called to check on our neighbors. I called north end of the county to talk to Nature's Tree Farm and make sure they were okay. They're the closest to us. Called over at Greenville, checked on Tidwells. They were fine. And I called and talked to Bottoms Nursery. If you had to drive from our nursery to his nursery on the highway, it would take you 15 or 20 minutes. It's only about eight or nine miles through the woods. And he's directly east of me. They were fine. It's like it. The, we're really close. To, we're less than a mile from the Flint River where, where the farm is. So it went through the woods and it hit the river and it just stopped and picked up. I didn't really know what we were going to do. All those plants were there. I called one of our neighboring farms who he's a vegetable producer, but he's got a little greenhouse. And I was asking if we could maybe move some of the more tender plants over there. I'll tell you, I've, I've never been so humbled as I was by the number of people who showed up to help us take those plants. I'm sorry, Craig. Hang on, I just need a minute. That's fine, take, take what you need. Okay. Um, so Bottom showed up with a cattle trailer. Every tool he had Every worker he had, Diversified showed up, Dorsey's, Patillo, I, I, all of our neighbors, all of our neighboring nurseries showed up and we moved plants to bottoms so they didn't get lost in the freeze. And I called Tibbles back and I was going to ask, he's got, he's got a good bit of greenhouse space over there in cold frames. I, I asked him if we could rent some spaces. He said, absolutely not. You will not rent any space. I'm going to give you these two houses for the spring. <laughs> so, <laughs> we, 
we converted two two coal frames into greenhouses, heated greenhouses. And I'm just going to tell you, we would, once again, we would not have made it without this industry supporting us. <laughs> if you've ever wondered if a nurseryman is inventive, I can tell you they are, every one of them in their own right. Gray and Bo were trying to decide how they were going to heat those greenhouses. Between the two of them, they figured out that, that we could set up a jet heater, got power over there, got fans running to circulate. It was not at all what we were accustomed to growing in with overhead heat and natural ventilation and rolling benches and all the spoiled things that we have at the greenhouse. We were able to produce some really great plants. We were able to ultimately rebuild. That's been such a blessing. The other part of that is even with all of that going on, I tend to be a very optimistic person. As soon as we had the plants secured and, and we had to get them done by Friday because that freeze was coming in on Friday night, we had Christmas and Christmas wasn't over and I was already planning on rebuilding. And Gray started laughing. He's like, Laney, you're the only person I know who's excited about rebuilding greenhouses that are gone. I was like, yes, but we get to fix everything that was wrong. So, <laughs> so it's it's not often you get a redo. I still look at it that way. We were able to grow. We've always focused on growing clean so that we don't have to use a lot of chemicals and, and focused on those preventative type measures. It's even more so now because we were able to correct the things that we didn't know. You know, when you're first building your structures, you don't know what you don't know. So it's still a small facility, but it looks a lot different than it did before. It's much more functional now. I feel like we're able to turn out a higher quality product. It ended up being a good thing. It certainly turned everything around. The other thing that blew me away with that is just the number of people who were so insistent that they were absolutely going to buy our plants to help us. They would call and I wouldn't have what they needed on the availability. They're like, well, let me get a load anyway. Everyone I know in this industry supports everyone else in this industry. We need each other. and It's a, it's a good industry. I have a lot of respect for it. You spoke about growing clean. Would you expand on that? Oh, absolutely. The pressure washer is my <laughs> favorite power tool. <laughs> we empty out the greenhouses three times a year and it gets pressure washed just with water. Keeps down on algae and weed pressure, anything like that. We've got the side entry doors and we've had these the whole time oftentimes when people will think about a greenhouse they think about a very narrow path through a long center ours actually enters through the side and the growing areas are on either side and there's a 10 foot wide strip of concrete to roll carts up and down and kind of break everything up into smaller zones we clean our tables between crops we use disinfectants e anything that we can do to prevent even down to using bagged soil and trying to keep weed pressure down. Anything that we can do on the front end, it goes to that old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We're not having to spray a lot of chemicals. I've got two children. They're now middle schoolers and know nearly everything. When they were little, they did not and they love to come down to the greenhouse. We've always focused on clean growing because I never wanted to not encourage that. And when you're spraying a lot of chemicals and everything, sometimes that can be a little concerning when you've got little people that you never know what they're gonna put in their mouth. You never know what they're gonna pick up. We've kind of grown with that premise. So Thunderwood Farms, your contract growing now, you're not really growing for the public, right? Not anymore. I've changed positions recently 
Yeah. Tell us about that. I was going through leadership with GGIA, which is the, the Georgia Green Industry Association. July 1st, I was scheduled to take over as chairperson. Back last February, our executive director, Chris Butts, felt that it was time for him to move to a new position, and he resigned. We're not mad at Chris. I'll just tell you that. We want him to be just as happy, but it did throw our executive committee for a little bit of a loop. As we were beginning the job search, and I was helping to think about that and all the things that you do as part of the board, I knew I had to apply for that job, and I didn't know that I'd get it. I just knew that I would never forgive myself. I would always have that what if in the back of my mind. I did apply and I did get it. It has been a roller coaster thanks to COVID, but it has been so much fun as well. I'm getting the opportunity to give back to the industry that's given so much to me. And I've always been active on the advocacy side. That's a big part of what GGIA is, advocacy, education, networking, and communication for ornamental horticulture in Georgia. This is just a fantastic opportunity for me right now. I hope it's equally as beneficial to our industry. I'm doing my best. How is Georgia Green Industry Association important to the industry? I mentioned the advocacy piece. I'll give you a quick example. Last year, during session, there was a bill that came up, Roads HB 1057, and they were targeting some bad actors that were spraying industrial waste on grasslands. That has nothing to do with what our industry does at all. The way it was written, it included industrial byproducts would have been taxed by the ton. Pine bark is an industrial byproduct, as is peat, perlite, clay, expanded shells, all the things that we use in our soilless media. And we saw this come across. GGIA has a legislative committee and we looked through and we were able to say, hey, wait a minute, don't tax us on this. We're not targeting you. And then they realized that technically, these products are industrial byproducts. We were able to get a little piece added in there that excluded those items specifically. There's no impact. If you think about that, you're like, well, that's a very small thing. And it is, except if all of a sudden your soils and all your soilless media are being taxed, that gets passed along to the grower who passes it along to the retailer who passes it along to the consumer or to the grower, to the landscape contractor, to the consumer. But ultimately, it ends up just driving up the cost in our business. That sort of advocacy, I've had people ask me, are you left? Are you right? And I always tell them we're green. We're a nonpartisan organization and we look out for Georgia's green industry. And that's our focus. That's a big part of what we do. The other pieces are the education, networking and communication. We have a big annual trade show, which is the networking opportunity. And that's also our biggest education opportunity. Well, you know, everyone in our industry needs continuing education credits to maintain their licenses and those sorts of things. This is a great opportunity to do that and to get everyone together, people to sell the products that they have for the coming year. We do that piece. And then the communication piece ties back to all three, communicating it back to our members to make sure that we're on the right path. People have a seat at the table. What about the economic impact of the green industry? Oh, my goodness. I want to be clear about what I'm saying here. There's a big difference between farm gate value and the economic impact. Our economic impact would include the farm gate value and then the contractor value and then the retail value and all these values. 
our UGA economist, Dr. Ben Campbell, pulled our numbers together. He got them to me in November of 2020, and these are based off of 2018 sales. 9.97 billion with a B and 104,000 jobs in Georgia. And those are pulled off of specific NAICS code. It's a tremendous industry. Yeah. Huge. Yes, I can't wait to see what 2020 numbers are with the plant shortages that we're looking at right now. I think everybody sold everything. That's because of the people being at home and gardening is taking off. It really has. People have begun to plant vegetable gardens and just gardening overall with people being at home. They've realized that there's been a resurgence. If you're on social media, you'll see the hashtag Victory Garden 2.0. Been a real return to that, which is great for our industry. The more that people understand what we do, the more they'll understand. What about the environmental impact? That's a tremendous aspect as well. When you look at particularly very urban areas, and Atlanta has so many trees, which is the biggest market for most everyone here in Georgia. These trees, they take up so much of the stormwater and runoff, the offset carbon sequestration. Every plant that we grow, it sequesters carbon. It mm -hmm. takes in CO2 and it puts off O2. That's exactly what that is. The plants clean the air. They take up the excess stormwater from the runoff. The overall health benefit to being outside and being around plants, even planting a plant, those are just tremendous things that are very hard to put a number on. Quality of life is so greatly improved by them. What do you think the state of the industry is? Green and growing. And I say that because 2017 numbers was nearly a billion dollars lower than the 2018 numbers and between 20 and 25,000 jobs less. There's definitely an increase in industry participation it can be from people joining the industry all the way down to more people gardening, even just keeping a house plant or a container participating in the green industry. What do you see as the biggest challenges or issues facing the green industry? Conservation of natural resources. We're in Georgia. We have years like last year where it rains and rains and rains, and then we have years that it does not rain. That's one of the big challenges in our industry is being prepared for those dry times and making sure that we're responsible stewards. I don't know a single person in this industry who wants to destroy the environment. Every single one I know wants to improve the environment. That comes down to the right plant in the right place, responsible irrigation. There's so many little things that you can do. Even planting a shade tree on the southern side of your house that will lose its leaves in the wintertime can help with the environment. These type of challenges of making sure that we're responsible stewards. The other biggest thing is educating the end user about our products so that the right plant does get in the right place. We're not inadvertently causing harm to the environment. Do you see any new trends happening in landscaping and gardening? A lot of times we'll see turf areas getting smaller in favor of naturalized areas. I've seen a lot of designers that are going to a more minimal approach from the maintenance side. I have mixed feelings about that because I think we should cover the whole world in plants. There's a garden design for every single person. And just as long as we're being responsible with what we're putting in and not causing harm, I think it's good. The pollinator thing is a huge trend. The Georgia Department of Agriculture is even helping promote pollinator plants. There'll be a lot of garden centers across the state and website with 
plants that you can plant for pollinator garden. Very broad in nature. They didn't go down to a specific species or anything like that. Hydrangeas or hosta or verbena or lantana, just very broad genre. They listed some and, and places that you can purchase those to be part of that type of gardening. That's a new trend with it himself is the Department of Ag promoting the green industry, wouldn't you think? I would definitely say so. Our industry has often been overlooked as agriculture. It couldn't be further from the truth. We are agriculture. I think it's just not something that people really connect because we're not producing food and we're not producing fiber. I like this saying, we feed the soul. That's what our industry does. It is agriculture. There's no two ways about it. Where would we rank in agriculture? Oh, you're going to love this. Number five, ag commodity, which is just tremendous to me. None of the commodities can reach poultry and broilers. Green industry comes in number five. That's strong. Yeah, yeah. Do you know who two, three, and four are? Sure. So we start at number one with poultry and eggs. Number two is the row and forage crops. Three, livestock and aquaculture. Four is vegetables. And five is ornamental horticulture. Right. People often confuse horticulture. Horticulture is a really large field. Peaches are horticulture and so are tomatoes, but those aren't ornamental horticulture. We separate ourselves there, even though the lines are getting blurred more and more every year between ornamental and vegetable production, even in the home landscape. Going back to those trends, there was a great education session this year at Wintergreen, and it was called the Foodscape Revolution, and it was all about incorporating food plants into your your conventional ornamental garden. It was really neat the way she pulled it together. Would you like to tell people how they can connect with you online? To reach out to the Georgia Green Industry Association, ggia.org. You can also catch us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. The handle's at GA Green Industry. Our logo is the state of Georgia. Top is blue. There's a green leaf and some brown at the bottom. You'll know it's us. We're also launching a YouTube channel. We'll just say there's more to come on that. Laney Ryder, thank you for sharing your pollinator insights on the Garden Question Podcast, Episode 12. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.